So um, last week uh, we had a, a wonderful time and uh, I again wanted to uh, thank uh, Jorge. I, I like to call him Jorge because I'm practicing my Spanish. It's been too long, but George did a, an amazing job facilitating the spirit and helping us learn about the Shabbat. And, and so I just, again, want to thank you so much. I know he's humble. He's like, you know, God gets all the glory, but um, you were obedient. And uh, it, was, it was beautiful, very beautiful. So um, <clears throat> but not but. And I have to let you know that um, I was grieved a little bit. Not, not at the teaching, not at the presentation, because everything was so right on. But um, with some of the responses, not necessarily by you, but even afterwards, there were some responses about it. It just hurt my heart. And um, I wanted to share with you something real quick. Um, how many times did Yeshua bring up, <clears throat> teach about, or <clears throat> talk about the Shabbat in his ministry that, that are recorded? Anybody know? How many times he stressed and you know, preached a sermon on Shabbat. Um, he actually never preached a sermon on Shabbat. However, with his life, he demonstrated that he kept a Shabbat. And we see that over and over again. That the Shabbat was important to him because it was important to his father. Um, but interestingly enough, there is only one time, and it's recorded in two different Gospels, that Yeshua himself talked about the Shabbat. <clears throat> and the first I'm going to read, it's from Matthew and then as well as Mark. But Matthew 12 says, One Shabbat during that time, Yeshua was walking through some wheat fields. His Talmudim were hungry, so they began picking heads of grain and eating them. Now, there might be some people in the Messianic movement um, who would say, those are sinners. They worked on Shabbat. <clears throat> Coincidentally, on seeing this, the Peloshim, the Pharisees, said to him, look, your Talmudim are violating Shabbat. But he said to them, haven't you ever read what David did when he and those with him were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence on Shabbat, which was prohibited both to him and to his companions. It is permitted only to the Kohanim. <clears throat> and he said, or haven't you read in the Torah that on Shabbat the Kohanim profane Shabbat and yet are blameless? I tell you, there is in this place something greater than the temple. If you knew what I want compassion rather than animal sacrifice meant, you would not condemn the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of Shabbat. 
Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man there had a shriveled hand. Looking for a reason to accuse him of something, they asked him, is healing permitted on Shabbat? But he answered, if you have a sheep that falls in a pit on Shabbat, which of you won't take hold of it and lift it out? In other words, you little hypocrites, selfish little blankety-blanks. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Think about that. Think about that. The next time we want to criticize or condemn somebody for doing something on the Shabbat, what's more important? criticizing them or their eternity. <clears throat> Therefore, what is permitted is the only thing he said about what is or is not permitted. He said what is permitted on Shabbat is to do good. Then to the man he said, just to give it to the Pharisees, hold your hand out. As he held it out, it became restored as sound as the other one. But the Perishim went out and began plotting how they might do away with Yeshua. And so my question, God's question, to me and to all of us is, are we going to do good? Are we going to follow Yeshua or are we going to be a Perishim? At least with regard to this, right? Mark 2 talks about the very exact same event, gives it a little bit of a of a different twist. One Shabbat, Yeshua was passing through some wheat fields, and as they went along, his Talmudim began picking heads of grain. The Perishim said to him, Look, why are they violating Shabbat? He said to them, Haven't you ever read what David did when he and those with him were hungry and needed food? He entered the house of God when Evyatar was Kohen Gadol and ate the bread of the presence, which is forbidden for anyone to eat but the Kohanim and even gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, Shabbat was made for mankind, not mankind for Shabbat. So the Son of Man is Lord even of Shabbat. <clears throat> so Shabbat is a gift. It's a gift to us. It's a gift to us to be in the presence of the Lord. It's not an opportunity to condemn those who don't celebrate Shabbat the way the Bible intends it to be. I think that's, that's the, the critical point that we have to make sure of. And so going back to that statement that he uh, said in Matthew, therefore what is permitted on Shabbat is to do good. What does that mean? You remember Micah 6? One of my favorite scriptures because it basically just boils things down to exactly what we need to know and hear. Micah describes, With what shall I come before Adonai? With what shall I bow myself before God on high? In other words, do I have anything to offer God, to bring to God that makes me righteous? Shall I present him with burnt offerings with year-old calves? Will Adonai be pleased with thousands of rams, with hordes of rivers of oil, with slapping people around because they don't do exactly what I think they should do? Sorry, I, that was 
my little parentheses. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my belly for the sin of my soul? He has told you humanity. What is good? This is what we need to do on Shabbat when it comes to our interactions with other people. Ourselves, we know what a beauty, what a gift Shabbat is. When we interact with others, this is what Adonai is seeking from us, only to practice justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Amen? If we're going to do good on Shabbat, let's focus on this, on doing good. Amen? Y'all still love me? Cool. All right. Sefirat uh, HaOmer. Where are we in the Omer count? We, are, believe, are on day 30, right, today? Which is four weeks and two days of the Omer. And we say, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kichanu b'mitzvotah v'tzivanu al safirat haomer. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us regarding the counting of the Omer. So I, uh, I would continue to encourage you to meditate every one of these days as we move closer and closer to Shavuot and uh, continue to utilize um, Rabbi Coyle's uh, book on walking the walk, walking the journey from the Feast of First Fruits to Shavuot. It's a beautiful journey. Amen? All right, let's pray over our chillins and get ready for the word. Y'all are just so beautifully behaving. My goodness. I, I was about to say, do we have kids this morning? <laughs> oh, I just love our childrens. They're so precious. Oh. Um, baby? Tracy, would you mind praying over the children this morning? Do you want the microphone? Yeah, as you pray, I'll play. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, thank you for these blessings. Children are a blessing. Thank you, God. Thank you for, for trusting us with your sons and daughters. We're all here. God trusts all of us with all these children. He trusts us with the children that he placed in our lives. And I just pray, God, that we continue to be a good steward of what you have put beside us. Help us to raise up these beautiful gifts in the way that they should go and we believe you for your promise that when they get older they will not depart from it I don't take that casually because it's come truth in my own world Lord and I thank you for your promises 
Help us to love each and every one of these children um, as you would love them here on earth. Thank you for the opportunity to pray today. What a special day. I wish she was name. Thank you. you Lord all right let's greet one another um, but let me let me just can I share so today is a, a special day um, for us um, so uh, we um, we received some joyful news um, um, during our first year of marriage um, crazy news that Tracy was pregnant um, and things went along for a few weeks um, we actually went to Israel um, and something was not right on the way back and uh, turned out that on this day uh, six years ago um, we lost our our baby and so um, this, is, this is a special day. And um, we, knew, we knew it was a girl. And we knew when, when, she, was, when she conceived. I mean, we knew it. Like two weeks after we got married. married. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? But um, we knew it, and, and we knew it was a girl. And uh, we actually had a name for her, and that's Yarden, the Jordan. Um, and so um, today's is that celebration of, of her life. And uh, one day we will be seeing her again. So um, that's, I think, a lot of, and, and I, I, I knew the Lord wanted me to ask her to pray over the children. So, amen. Go ahead and greet one another as we prepare for the word. <coughs>
Shalom, brother. You know, I was reading on that that yeah. uh, passage where he's picking from the from the grain. Yeah, and David. Yeah, they're, they're uh -huh. accusing him, but mm -hmm. when you read the passage on the grain and all that, it was you can't take a sheep to it mm. or a sheep or whatever, but you can pluck it. Mm. <laughs> Little details, huh? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All right. This isn't Oneg. This is just a quick meet and greet. Come on, y'all. All right, so we are going to continue our uh, discussion, um, building a foundation to the, uh, the book of Revelation. <clears throat> we, uh, we've been hitting a lot, of, uh, a lot of background, and we're going to continue for probably another couple of weeks with background because it's so essential, so critical for us to approach the book of Revelation with Revelation, as opposed to our own theories. We need to understand what, uh, what Scripture says about Scripture, rather than what our opinions say about Scripture. Amen? And so we're going to continue to build a, a foundation before we get into the book of the Revelation. So, Father, we ask you to show us your ways, Adonai. Teach us your paths, Lord. Let not one word that comes out of my mouth be my opinion. Let it be your truth. Not my truth, not somebody else's truth, but the truth. And so lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. On you we wait all the day. So, again, just a reminder... Uh, not that I have to, you guys could probably uh, uh, say these, uh, these four points um, on your own, but over and over when it comes to scriptures regarding the end times, the Aharit Hayamim, the last days, God points us to the land of Israel as the focal point of the last days and of redemptive prophecy. Everything that has to do with redemption everything that has to do with redemption points us to the land of Israel and has occurred essentially in the land of Israel. Over and over, God associates the last days with the severe persecution and ultimate restoration of national Israel. Over and over, God gives us glimpses of the last day scenario in, in bits and pieces but always with the focus on his covenant people, the Jewish people, the children of Abraham, and his holy city, Jerusalem. And so if we're going to look at any prophetic scripture, we cannot fully and accurately understand it without first recognizing the relationship, the patterns, and the history of the Jewish people. And so as we build this uh, foundation, we look at uh, various books that are prophetic books 
And we understand that all of these books are repeatedly alluded to or even directly quoted in the book of the Revelation. And so to understand and interpret what Yohanan saw in the book of Revelation, we have to understand what Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Zechariah saw. And so last couple of weeks we talked about Ezekiel and uh, in the last session about this alliance, this Gog-Magog alliance of nations. And he said, and you will invade my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. And this will be in the Acharit Hayamim, the last days. Period. Mic drop. Boom. That's it. Right? Whatever's going to be going on in the war that ensues this it's really not a war, it's an attack of the Gog-Magog alliance upon the nation of Israel will happen in the last days. But Ezekiel 39 says, you, talking to this alliance, will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, says Adonai Elohim. What is that open field? Anybody know? Other scriptures, maybe even in the book of the Revelation, it alludes to this place called the Valley of Har Megiddo. What is Har Megiddo? What does Har mean in Hebrew? Anybody know? Mountain, right? The mountain of Megiddo. How many of you have been to Israel? How many of you stood on the Mount of Megiddo? It ain't no mountain. It's just a hill. You know, I'm from California where we got the Sierra Nevadas and we got all sorts of things, right? It's a hill. But when you stand on this hill, you see this huge valley. And people are like, how can a valley in little old Israel contain millions of people, troops? If you've ever been there and if you haven't, I recommend that you stand on Har Megiddo, on the mountain of Megiddo, and look at the valley of Megiddo, right? Piece of cake. Easy for millions to be there in the valley. And so it says, you will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, says Adonai Elohim. I will also send fire against Magog, and against those living securely in the coastlands. We can, you know, use our imagination as to what that might be. But it, that's even outside of Israel. But again, the focus is where? Israel, the land. Then they will know that I am Adonai. Who's they? The entire world. How will the entire world know what's going on? CNN, Fox News, etc., etc. And they will know that I am Adonai, the Lord. I will make my holy name known among my people Israel. So first he says, the nations and those who are attacking and those who live in those nations will know that I am the Lord. 
He says, then I will make my holy name known among my people, Israel. I will not allow my holy name to be profaned any longer. Then the goyim will know that I am Adonai, the Holy One in Israel. Yes, this is coming and it will be done, says Adonai Elohim. This is the day about which I have spoken. He says, then they will know, talking about Israel, that I am Adonai, their God. Very different. Since it was I who caused them to go into exile among the nations, and it was I who regathered them into their land, I will leave none of them there anymore. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says Adonai Elohim. The whole goal is for God to pour out his spirit on the nation of Israel, physical nation of Israel, and the land of Israel, fully, completely restoring them to their covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here is this timeline, if you will, of Ezekiel. And we didn't really read nor look at the history per se, so I'll, I'll you know, kind of summarize it a bit. But looking back about 400 years before, 350 years before <clears throat> this prophecy took place, uh, was the end of King Solomon's reign. And we know that the end of King Solomon's reign was not like the beginning, right? He was idolatrous. He gave himself over to his wives who were all, you know, idol worshipers in the land. And from then on, things went downhill. And you have this reign of idolatrous kings, you know, Hezekiah being an exception in there. And then ultimately the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the last Jewish king, Jehoiakim, right? And then the beginning of this, this section of the book of Ezekiel describes when he is given the, the command to go ahead and prophesy over the future of Israel, the beginning of that he talks about this shepherd, the, the failure and the sins of the shepherds that came before of Israel, but now God himself will come and shepherd his people. And from then on, Right? He talks about what will happen in the future. He talks about the eternal uh, enemies of Israel, the Edomites, the, uh, the Mount Seir and the nations, and their continuous hatred towards Israel and the mockery of God. We went through that in chapter 35 and 36. And then he talks about 37, the resurrection of the nation of Israel. But first... They have to be scattered throughout the whole world. And we know that in 70 AD, with the destruction of the temple, and between then and about 135, 140 AD, a million Jewish people were murdered, and the rest of them were scattered throughout the nations. We know in 1948, the dry bones began to rise as God breathed his spirit into the Jewish nation and into the land. And what has happened between then and now is the nation of Israel has not only risen 
and become a prosperous nation, right? But they've become essentially one of the world powers, this little tiny nothing, right? There are nations all over the world that are looking to Israel for technology in the defense industry. I mean, literally almost every day we hear about missiles, right? Just a few days ago, again, at a whim, you know, Hamas and Islamic Jihad decided they were going to send 100 missiles Israel's way. How many Israelis were killed? None. A hundred missiles. If Canada or Mexico decided to send a hundred mi missiles into one of our big cities, I don't remember anything there to protect us. How many dozens and dozens of people would be murdered, killed? And yet God's, it's not the Iron Dome, it's the shield of God. But one day that's going to explode and nations are going to gather against Israel and the whole world is going to say, you know what, they deserve it. Whatever they're doing to these so-called Palestinians, they deserve it. And it's going to all be centered around Jerusalem. So it's going to come to a head in the war, this, this war of Gog and Magog. And again, it's called the war of Gog and Magog, but it really isn't. It's the assault of the Gog-Magog alliance upon Israel. And then God's vengeance. The final judgment on Edom, Mount Seir, and the final judgment on the Gog-Magog alliance. And he said they are aligned against me. Even though they're going after the land and the people, he said they're aligned against me. And that's not a place I want to be. <laughs> be aligned against the God of the universe. And so ultimately this leads to the spiritual redemption. We talked about how these nations, all the way back in Ezekiel, and, and really when we talked about this image of you know, interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar uh, that Daniel did in chapter 2 of Daniel, and how this image seemed to be you know, one long image, and then these, this clay just came out of nowhere, out of the ground, into the feet, right? Very different, and they wouldn't intermingle with all the rest of, of this image. We talked about the image being, you know, the Roman Empire that continues to this day, and the clay being something else. We postulated that maybe... If this is um, following the same pattern, that this is a kingdom, an empire that is aligned against Israel and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the last 1,600 years, there has been 1,500 years, there has been one nation, one kingdom one alliance that has been against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the one thing that unifies this and all the nations that are described in the, in the alliance of Gog and Magog come from this land that surrounds Israel. And the one thing that unifies all this 
is Islam. Now again, we're putting the pieces of the puzzle together. <clears throat> Dallas Rourke um, wrote a book called Answering Islam, and he said, the immense hatred of the Jews was magnified in the time of Muhammad by Muhammad, and it is alleged that Allah gave the command for it. The Quran, the Hadiths, and the events in Muhammad's life explain the hatred that was reinforced with Muhammad and continued in his followers to this day. And so, um, you know, I've, I've shared this before for those of you who've kind of been connected with our ministry for, for a long time, but I, I just want to get us all on the same page because, again, I am not saying that um, that Muslims should be regarded as any different than any other person that doesn't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We love them. I mean, we read, love your enemies. Love them. I'm talking about an ideology that wraps its tentacles around a people. You know, how many, how many Muslims are there in the world? Anybody know? There's over a billion Muslims identified, right? Well over. The estimate, and this is a low estimate, of what percentage of them are radicalized. In other words, committed to the, to the usurpation of all non-Muslim nations and lands, whether by the sword or by control in other ways estimates about 15%, which is a small amount when, when you think about percent. But when you think about the number of people, at minimum, that's 150,000, right? Their Bible is called the Quran, right? And so I want to share a couple of things. I am not preaching out of another Bible. I'm just sharing something that comes out of the ideology, the things that wrap its tentacles around people who, as a whole, have an innate, intrinsic hatred against the Jewish people. And where does this come from? It's spiritual. It comes all the way back to, you know, Jacob and Esau. All the way back to Ishmael and Isaac. But let's hear from their scriptures how this is codified. So in uh, Quran, the fifth book, the 60th verse, say, O Muhammad, to the people of the scripture. Who are the people of the scripture? Jews and Christians. Shall I inform you of something worse than that regarding the recompense from Allah? Those Jews who incurred the curse of Allah and his wrath, those of whom some he transformed into monkeys and swines, those who worship Tagut, false deity, such are worse in rank on the day of resurrection in the hellfire and far more astray from the right path. Even today, if you listen to some radical Muslim preachers, they will say, don't you know that Allah has turned Jews 
into monkeys and pigs. This is the Quran. This is not somebody's opinion. In Surah 5, O ye who believe, take not the Jews and the Christians for friends. They are friends one to another. He among you who taketh them for friends is one of them. Lo, Allah guideth not wrongdoing folk. Your friends can be only Allah and his messenger, Muhammad, and those who believe, who establish worship and pay the Purdue and bow down in prayer. And whoso taketh Allah and his messenger and those who believe for friends will know that. Lo, the party of Allah, they are the victorious. O ye who believe, choose not for friends such of those who receive the scripture before you and of the disbelievers. Lo, those who believe in, in Surah 569, and those who are Jews and Sabians and Christians, whoso believeth on Allah in the last day and doeth right, there shall no fear come upon them, neither shall they grieve. In other words, if you convert to Islam, you will make it through. And, and this phrase, the last day, aharit hayamim, it is throughout, that's in Hebrew, not in, in Arabic, but that is throughout the scriptures that talk about the relationship between Muslims and Jews. Listen to this, Surah 5, 71 through 74. They surely disbelieve who say, Lo, Allah is the Messiah, son of Mary. The Messiah himself said, O children of Israel, worship Allah. He's talking about Yeshua. My Lord and your Lord said this. They say that this is what Jesus said. O children of Israel, worship Allah, my Lord and your Lord. Lo, whoso ascribeth partners unto Allah, in other words, the Father, the Son, and the, the Holy Spirit, so to speak, for him Allah hath forbidden paradise. His abode is the fire. For evildoers there will be no helpers. They surely disbelieve who say, Lo, Allah is the third of three, when there is no God save the one God. If they desist not from so saying, a painful doom will fall on those of them who disbelieve. Will they not rather turn unto Allah and seek forgiveness of him? For Allah is forgiving, merciful. Eh. The Messiah, son of Mary, was no other than a messenger. Messengers like the, like of, the like of whom had passed away before him, and his mother was a saintly woman, and they both used to eat earthly food. See how we make the revelations clear for them, and see how they are turned away. 98.6, those who reject truth among the people of the book, Jews and Christians, and among the polytheists will be in hellfire to dwell therein, for I, they are the worst of creatures. Surah 929, fight against those who believe not in the law, nor in the last day, nor forbid that which has been forbidden by Allah and his messengers, messenger Muhammad, and those who acknowledge not the religion of truth, i.e. Islam, among the people of the scripture, until they pay the jizya, which is the poll tax, with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Anybody know what Islam means in Arabic? Huh? Can you? To submit. To subdue. To, to 
A Muslim is one who is subdued by Allah and submitted to him. Anybody know what the hadiths are? It's kind of like the, uh, the Talmud, but it's actually not um, exactly like it. The hadiths are supposedly the acts of Muhammad, not just the words of Muhammad, which were outlined in, in the Quran, but the acts, the deeds of Muhammad, and, and some of the things that he actually said. So one of these is uh, called Sahih Muslim, 6985, says this, Abu Huraira reported Allah, and by the way, like most um, you know, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews look at the Talmud and the Mishnah as equivalent in terms of, of truth and guidance to the scripture. So Muslims look at the Hadith as truth and guidance equal to the Quran. So Abu Huraira reported Allah's messenger, Muhammad, may peace be upon him, as saying this, the last hour the last hour would not come unless the Muslims will fight against the Jews and the Muslims would kill them until the Jews would hide themselves behind a stone or a tree and a stone or a tree would say, Muslim or the servant of Allah, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. But the tree Garhad would not say, for it is the tree of the Jews. And in Sahih Burkari, we read, Allah's apostle said, the hour will not be established, the hour, the last day, the end of time as we know it, will not be established until you fight with the Jews and the stone behind which a Jew will be hiding will say, O Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me, so kill him. So it's not about, you know, some people say, well, you know, the Bible talks about killing people and all that, it doesn't command people to kill in order for the last days to be fulfilled. Right? And so, it's pretty heavy stuff. And, and we wonder, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful Muslims who, who love the Jewish people, who stand by the Jewish people. Um, but obviously they interpret the Quran very differently than anybody else who would interpret the Quran, you know, the way it actually says, the words that it actually says. And so the, the other most important scripture that um, we need to utilize as a foundation for the book of Revelation um, is the ninth chapter of Daniel. So we have the second chapter of Daniel, we have Ezekiel 35 through 39, we have the ninth chapter. Really, we're going to go back and forth to the book of Daniel and, and the book of Jeremiah as we enter into the book of, of the Revelation. But we need to set another precedence here before we dive deep into the book of Revelation, and that's Daniel 9. And I'm going to try to get into it as much as I possibly can. Now, how do we know that Daniel 9 is really, really important when it comes to the last days? 
because the scripture has been interpreted by different people in so many different ways. But Daniel 9 is the one scripture that ultimately got me saved as a Jew. How many of you know about Daniel 9, who studied Daniel 9 before, right? The ninth chapter, and specifically verses 24 through 27. <clears throat> How do we know that Daniel, and, and specifically the ninth chapter, and again, even more specifically, those four verses are important? Because in Yeshua's message about the last days, his only message, his preaching on it, called the Olivet Discourse, if you remember, when he took a few of his closest disciples and they went up to the top of the Mount of Olives and his disciples looked over as they were sitting and said, wow, look how beautiful the temple is. And Yeshua said, not one stone will be left upon another. And they were, they were just floored, blown away. And they asked him three questions. He said, they said, when will this happen? And when will be the time of your coming and the end of the age? They asked him those three questions. And he then began to answer those three questions. And it's in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. So I would encourage you to study those chapters. We're not going to get into that. We're just going to get into one section here, and that's in Matthew 24. Verse 15, so when you see the abomination that causes devastation spoken about through the prophet Daniel, Yeshua quotes the book of Daniel. You know, there's a lot of people that say there is absolutely no way on God's green earth that Daniel can be prophetic, that it is somebody who wrote it way after all these events have occurred and because it describes history so precisely, it's impossible, right? Well, then we have to say Yeshua is a liar. Because he himself said, as the prophet Daniel spoke, he said, so when you see the abomination that causes de devastation spoken about by the spoken about through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand the illusion. That's in the original gospel. Let the reader understand the illusion. So this is a very important part of Scripture if we want to understand the last days. He says that will be the time for those in Yehuda to escape to the hills. If someone is on the roof, he must not go down to gather his belongings from his house. If someone's in the field, he must not turn back to get his coat. What a terrible time it will be for a pregnant woman and nursing mothers. He's talking about an event that is catastrophic. He said, pray that you'll not have to escape in winter or, or in Shabbat. Why? Because everything shuts down on Shabbat. You can't get out. Right? For there will be trouble then 
worse than there has ever been from the beginning of the world until now, and there will be nothing like it again. Whatever happens at this time, when Daniel was talking about this abomination that causes devastation, there'll be nothing like it. Which means the Holocaust pales in comparison. Indeed, if the length of this time had not been limited, no one would survive but for the sake of those who have been chosen, its length will be limited. And so let's get into, as long as we can, um, into the ninth chapter of Daniel and see why this was such an important scripture that even Yeshua quoted it when he talked about the last days and this, this event that's going to take place in Israel and in Jerusalem. Again, you, you know, I'm, I'm not just saying this when I say if you want to interpret prophecy, if you want to see and understand prophecy, you have to put yourself in Jerusalem and see it from the, the Hebraic perspective. Otherwise, you're going to miss it. So let's set this, this stage for Daniel 9. This was in Babylon around this time. He was, it was about 50 years into their... Um, you know, their removal from the land and in Babylon. This is this into Babylon. Daniel has been in Babylon for about 50 years now. Okay. And how do we know that? It says in the first year of Darius, Dariavesh. We know when that year was by history. We know that that took place about 50 years into their 70 year time in Babylon. So it's about this time. In the first year of Daryavesh, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth who was made king over the kingdom of the Kazdim. And you remember the history where the Babylonians conquered and then the Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, was reading the scriptures. There were scriptures back then? I guess so. There were some. Not all of them had been written, but there was one book that he was particularly focused on, Daniel, and he said, And thinking about the number of years which Adonai had told Yermiah, Jeremiah the prophet, would be the period of Yerushalayim's desolation, 70 years. So he's 50 years in, and he's thinking about, as he's reading Jeremiah's book, Right? That, man, we're 50 years into this. If he's a prophet of God, that means we got 20 years. Oh, Lord, how is this going to happen? And so Daniel, somewhere in here, begins to get this vision. How do we know that? It'll share with us later that the angel Gabriel came to him and said, when you started to pray, hear me out, when you started to pray, the vision, I, I was sent, your prayers were answered, and I was sent to you when you started to pray to help you understand the vision. 
So somewhere in here, in this prayer, Daniel sees a vision. He said, I turn to Adonai, God, to seek an answer, pleading with him in prayer with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Um, I, I think this helps us understand you know, what the purpose of fasting is. The purpose of fasting is not to get God to move. God's going to do what he's going to do when he does it, how he wants to do it to whoever he wants to do it to. Fasting gets us prepared, gets us quieted down so we can hear God. That's the purpose of fasting. So he's seeking an answer and he's fasting, but he's not just fasting. He's fasting with sackcloth and ashes. What does that mean? He's in a state of repentance. You want to hear from God? This is a great example of what you need to do. Fast so you can quiet down and be in a state of repentance. God, what does that mean? Whatever you say, I will hear and obey. I am turning to you completely. I prayed to Adonai, my God, and made this confession. Please, Adonai, great and fearsome God, who keeps his covenant and extends grace to those who love him and observe his mitzvot. We have sinned. He didn't say they. There is not one time in the entire book of Daniel or in the entire Bible that Daniel is spoken of as having done something wrong. Now, we know he's human, but not once. Pretty much every other prophet says, you know, there's somewhere in there saying that, you know, you kind of messed up a little bit here. Not once. And yet he says, we have sinned, done wrong. He is interceding. He is putting his place in the place of Israel. Acted wickedly, rebelled and turned away from your mitzvot and rulings. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. This is Daniel, the greatest prophet, and one of the greatest prophets, in, in my humble opinion. He says, we haven't listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our leaders, our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. To you, Adonai, belongs righteousness, but to us today belongs shame. To us, the men of Yehuda, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, including those nearby and those far away throughout all the countries where you had driven them, because they broke faith with you. Yes, Adonai, shame falls on us, our kings, our leaders, and our ancestors, because we sinned against you. It is for Adonai, our God, to show compassion and forgiveness, because we rebelled against him. We didn't listen to the voice of Adonai, our God, so that we could live by his laws, which he presented to us through his servants, the prophets. So he's, he's just repenting for national Israel. Yes, all Israel flouted your Torah and turned away, unwilling to listen to your voice. Therefore, the curse and oath written in the Torah of Moshe the servant of God was poured out on us because we sinned against him. He carried out the threats he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us disasters so great that under all of heaven nothing has been done like what has been done in Jerusalem. 
As written in the Torah of Moshe, this whole disaster came upon us. Yet we did not appease Adonai our God by renouncing our wrongdoing and discerning your truth. Can you imagine? Even after they get expelled out of the land, even after the temple is destroyed, even then they didn't renounce their wrongdoing. So Adonai watched for the right moment to bring this disaster upon us, for Adonai our God was just in everything he did, yet we didn't listen when he spoke. You mean God brought the disaster? Hey, God is God. And I say this again and again, and we're not. I'm not questioning God. You know, there's a lot of people that try to get around this. Well, he didn't really bring it. He allowed it to happen. No, the Hebrew says he brought this disaster upon us. Now, Adonai, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand, thereby winning renown for yourself, as is the case today, we sinned, we acted wickedly. Adonai, in keeping with all your justice, please allow your anger and fury to be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because it is due to our sins and the wrongdoings of our ancestors that Jerusalem and your people have become objects of scorn among everyone around us. Therefore, our God, listen to the prayer and pleadings of your servant and cause your face to shine on your desolated sanctuary for your own sake. What's he asking here? Listen to the prayer and pleadings of your servant and cause your face to shine on your desolated sanctuary. What's that? What's his desolated sanctuary? What was the sanctuary of God that was desolated? The temple. For your own sake. Where was the temple? Jerusalem. My God, turn your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see how desolated we are, as well as the city which bears your name. For we plead with you, not because of our own righteousness, but because of your compassion. Adonai, hear. Adonai, forgive. Adonai, pay attention and don't delay action for your own sake. My God, because who? Your city and your people bear your name. So here we get this, this yearning prayer, this desire, this repentance in sackcloth and ashes, this fasting to hear the answer that God has for Daniel. And he said, while I was speaking, praying, confessing, confessing my own sin and the sin of my people Israel, and pleading before Adonai, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. What's the holy mountain of my God? Zion. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning. That's what I was alluding to before. <clears throat> swooped down on me in full flight at about the time of the evening sacrifice. Wait a minute, were they doing sacrifices? 
The temple was gone. They weren't doing sacrifices. You mean to tell me that Daniel was keeping track of when they would do the sacrifices and that maybe that's when he did his prayer of repentance? That that was his form of sacrifice, of repentance to God? That he kept track of that for 50 years after he was expelled out of Jerusalem? Oof. And explain things to me. He said, I have come now, Daniel, to enable you to understand this vision clearly. At the beginning of your prayers, an answer was given, and I have come to say what it is, because you are greatly loved. There's only two people in the Bible that God says they are greatly beloved. Anybody know who those two people are? One is Daniel, and the other is Yohanan, John. Coincidence. God gave the penultimate revelation of the last days to Daniel and John to tell us what we're supposed to be doing. He said, he said then, Gabriel said, Therefore, look into this answer and understand the vision. And I'm going to read this, and then we are going to call it an, an afternoon. And we're going to pick back up next week. 24 through 27. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city. Actually, we can stop right there. Seventy weeks have been decreed for who? Your people. Who's Daniel's people? And, and what is the holy city? Okay, so Gabriel is saying right now that what I'm about to tell you is about one thing, and that one thing is twofold. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So if you're going to interpret Daniel 24 through 27 in any other way other than this applies directly to his people and his holy city, you are not reading scripture. You are, I am a fool if I think that this has anything to do with anything other than his people and his holy city. And I can tell you, if you Google the 70 weeks, you will get 70,000 opinions. And most of them may have a little bit to do with Israel, but mostly it's about all sorts of craziness. This is about his people and his holy city, period. End of sentence. We can stop right now in terms of understanding what this is about. So anything we're about to read right now, from this point on, I know I keep stressing this and stressing this, but when you're sharing it with others, it has to be so embedded into your heart that prophecy has to do with Israel and the Jewish people, and not about the President of the United States, and not about Russia, and not, I mean, 
All those people were, are going to play roles, and all those nations may play roles. But the end times are about two things, his people and his holy city, period. All right? I think I've made that point. For putting an end to the transgression, for making an end of sin, for forgiving iniquity, for bringing in everlasting justice, for setting the seal on vision and profit, and for anointing the especially holy place. So whatever this 70 weeks means and whatever it's been decreed for his people and his holy city, it has to do with six things. Putting an end to the transgression, making an end for sin, for forgiving iniquity, for bringing in everlasting justice, for setting the seal, in other words, closing out on vision and profit, and for anointing the especially holy place. What does all that mean? We'll find out. Now, this is the complete Jewish Bible, and I will tell you um, that 99% of the complete Jewish Bible is so accurate to the Hebrew, but somehow this is a little different, especially in verse 25. So I'm going to show you where the differences are in, from the original Hebrew and how Every version has a little bit of the translator in the version. It says, Know therefore and discern that seven weeks of years will elapse between the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed prince comes. It will remain built for 62 weeks of years with open spaces and moats, but these will be troubled times. Then, after the 62 weeks, Mashiach will be cut off. What? Let's focus on that for a minute. Can you imagine me as a Jewish person who believes that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to reign on the throne of King David and bring peace to the world and do all these righteous things and get all the crazy Gentiles to, to become believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then I read this? Then after the 62 weeks, Mashiach will be cut off and have nothing? What? The people of a prince yet to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Remember, this is happening after the destruction of the temple has already occurred. So this is another episode in the future. Will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. So as a Jew, I'm sitting here going... All right, Babylonians have already destroyed Jerusalem. This is a vision that Daniel gets after that by 50 years or so. And now he's telling about a future time where the Messiah will be cut off. And then after that, the, the temple in the Jerusalem will be destroyed. There was only one other time that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And there was only one person who claimed to be the Messiah that was actually cut off. And it happened before... The temp second temple was destroyed. Oh, what? Do you know how utterly amazing this prophecy is? Do you know when this was, was, this was written? you know when Daniel was living? 560 years before Yeshua was even born. And Gabriel is giving him this vision that he saw explaining to him what the future of his people is going to be like. He's like, yeah, in 20 years you're going to be back. 
However, look what else is happening. The people of the prince yet to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, but his end will come with a flood and desolations are decreed until the war is over. And then it says, he will make a strong covenant with leaders for one week of years. For half of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering on the wing of detestable things. This is what Yeshua was quoting. Now, it's a little bit different in the complete Jewish Bible than what we read in, in the gospel. On the wing of detestable things, the desolator will come and continue until the already decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Are you confused yet? Good. Every other translation, including the Tree of Life version, which is another very authentic, you know, to the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, the original Greek in terms of the Septuagint, um, and, you know, the, the later versions uh, of Scripture, um, says it this way. Seventy weeks are decreed concerning your people and your holy city to put an end of transgression, to bring sin to an end, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Holy of Holies. So no one understand from the issuing of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem until, the, until Mashiach the prince. And here is what the Hebrew actually says. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with plaza and moat, but it will be in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, which comes after the seven weeks, so it's after 69 weeks, Mashiach will be cut off and have nothing. Then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. 27, then he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of abominations will come one who destroys until the decreed annihilation is poured out on the one who destroys. All right. Stay tuned. Come back next week. We'll get into this verse by verse and break it down. And how does this apply to what we've already learned about, you know, Ezekiel and, and Gog and Magog? And you'll see. You'll see. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Um, we have to be out of here by 1 o'clock, folks. So we can't really do a whole lot of fellowshipping, unfortunately. They have an event. So let us stand and pray our ironic blessing. And we'll make up for it next week and stay for three hours afterwards <laughs> to fellowship. Sorry. Should have had the kids. Ah, thank you, Lord. Let's wait for the kids and then we'll pray. Any thoughts, questions on this? Lots of thoughts, lots of questions. What'd you say? What'd you say? Yeah. Good, good point, Martha. Hey, y'all, come join us. Yes, question. When in Ezekiel thirty-eight, where it talked about um, bringing the people back from where they've been dispersed, is 
Well, I guess we'll find out. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Sorry, but that's my best answer. Um, you know, I, I think that's okay. Uh, I think um, the, uh, the most amazing thing to me is that for the first time since, you know, 2,000 years, there are more Jews in Israel than there are outside of Israel for the first time. That's mind-boggling. Think about it. You know, that includes six million Jews who were murdered, right? And how many, so, you know, demographers have estimated anywhere between 350 and 500 million Jews would be alive today if the Holocaust didn't happen. Wow. 350 to 500 million Jews. That's how many generations the six million would have left us. Can you think, think about that, right? And today there are less than 17 million Jews in the world compared to 350 to 500,000, uh, 500 million, right? So it's not gonna take much for most, if not all the Jews. And, and if what we know of in the world is gonna continue happening, that Jews aren't safe anywhere but in Israel, Right? We'll see. And those grafted in. And those grafted in. Hey, come on. <laughs> Let's go. We want to see him landing on the Mount of Olives. We don't care what else happens. Amen. Amen. Baruch Hashem Adonai. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Shalom.